So what we're going to do is we're going to try to, um, and, and some of you will see what we're doing here. We're going to finish what we've been focusing on. So we're going to finish with at least this part of Paul and the radical change. And then what we're going to use this as, as a link to where we're going next week. So this is kind of a bridge message. It finishes where we've been, and then it also connects us to where we're going for next week and Easter and the whole discussion of, of Christ's sacrifice and the resurrection, what that means for us. So um, I'm calling this an ambassador of the good news. We'll look at this. We'll go back to Acts 16, verses 1 and 2. Again, we talked about how the Apostle Paul began what is known in you know, sort of biblical language as the second missionary journey he, he goes back to revisit the churches that he and his partner in ministry, uh, Barnabas, had founded. Now he has a new associate named Silas. And they make a decision. In fact, you know, I'm going to have them, them put the map up for one last time um, as we talk about this. Again, to remind everyone that we're talking about real places, um, still can be seen today. Jerusalem, of course, in the center of the world, even now. If you go up north, they're having a civil war, even as we speak. Uh, Syria, Antioch of Syria, which is where the church really begins to flourish as a both Jew and Gentile church. It was the first time it ever happened like that ever in history because in Jerusalem it had been a predominantly Jewish church who were following Jesus, led by the apostles and Peter and, and James, the half-brother of Jesus, who had emerged as the, the primary leader in that church. But now we talk about how they begin to plant churches in what is now known, it was known then Asia Minor, now known as modern-day Turkey, was a real place as Paul and Barnabas planted churches for the first time. They crossed the Mediterranean. They went there. They planted them. Paul had a desire to go back and revisit the churches that, after, you know, it's been a significant amount of time, well over a year. And he wanted to go back and see how they were doing, encourage them. And so they made a decision this time to go by land. And he went back and he stopped along the way at the place of his birth, Tarsus, in the area of Cilicia. And then he made his way back up to what had been the last spot on their first journey, the idea of, you can see it there, Derby and Lystra and Iconium, those areas. He goes back, and we talked about this. It says here, verse, let's just read it, verse 1. It says that Paul went first to Derby. you can see that, then to Lystra. And it was there, and we're given a little bit of information here. It says it was in Lystra that there was a young disciple named Timothy. And his mother was a Jewish believer, but his father was a Greek. So Timothy is a man of, of two different ethnicities. He's a kind of blending. We talked about how much that represented for Paul, the very two groups that he wanted to reach the most, his own Jewish people, um, and that was from Timothy's mother's side, but also that he had a burden for the Gentiles, the Greeks, and, and Timothy kind of represents the combination of both those. He's, he's from two different, in a way, two different backgrounds, but they've meshed together in a unique expression. And we see that, that it was in Lystra, and we spent some time talking about that, because remember it was in Lystra, and again, that's where Paul had what was probably his most traumatic moment in his entire ministry, if not the most, at least one of them. He certainly never forgot it because his body bore scars about what had happened there. We spent a lot of time talking about what had happened when he was seized and how the angry mob rose up. Um, and at the end of it, he was lying in a, in a crushed heap under a rubble of rocks, uh, barely alive. In fact, they thought he was dead. He was dragged out of the city. The people who were watching, many of them were believers in the new church that had been established. And of course, Barnabas was there as well. They were stunned, shocked, afraid, terrorized. It was like one of those moments when a mob just gets out of control, and um, it, it was like insane. And by the time it was done, Paul, everybody thinks he's dead. In that crowd was probably, and we, we can conjecturize this, or at least we're pretty confident about it, that 
there was Timothy in the crowd. He, at the time, he was probably in his early 20s. He was certainly a younger man. He had a mother and a grandmother who were both believers, and they would have been there as well. To everybody's surprise, Paul had Paul got up. He he, and then he came back again the next time. So you know, who would have known? We talked about this, and we're not going to spend too much time about in it. But we talked about how Lystra, which was a place of deep scarring and wounding, a place of stones and scars, was the place that became an. an, an I would, we would call it an extraordinary gift for Paul because it was out of that place that, that he was given his son in the faith. And it's a reminder to you and me, you know, again, stones, scars on a son. It's a reminder to you and me that even in the worst places in our lives, and we will have a few, that even in those places, if we will allow the Lord's grace to be there, he will show up in, in a way that we could have never envisioned. Every time Paul thought about that horrific moment in his life, he could, all, he could also connect it to a gift that God had given him in Timothy. It became, Timothy becomes a symbol of the grace of God for Paul. He says I, he will become his friend. He will become a great leader in his own right. He will become an associate. He will become someone that Paul says is like a son to me. He says, he says, I have no one like Timothy, no one in this entire world. He is so unique and so special. He's such a wonderful, quality young man. Look what it says here. It says that Timothy, in verse 2, was well thought of um, by the believers in Lystra and Iconium. So he, he is already, as a younger man in his early 20s, already established a growing reputation as someone who, who is admired and thought highly of. He, he has integrity. He has character. His, his leadership seems to be um, an honest, authentic expression of genuine love for Jesus that inspires others. As a result, Timothy is, is someone that Paul and their team begins to wonder, would he be interested in coming with them on the rest of their journey? And so, but there was only a couple of problems. You can see, we'll look at them. Verse 3, it says, So Paul wanted him to join them on their journey, but in deference to the Jews of the area, he arranged for Timothy to be circumcised before they left, for everyone knew that his father was a Greek. Now, we read this, and if we have, don't have a real background, it's like, what are they talking about? But Paul wanted to have Timothy circumcised. Again, circumcision was the removal of the male foreskin that went all the way back. That practice went all the way back to the time of Abraham. It usually happened when they were a boy, baby. Still does. And it was a symbol that, that represented something for the Jewish people in particular. For them, it was a sacred way of acknowledging that they were uniquely connected to the God of Israel. And they honored it. It went back further than even the law of Moses. And so... And Paul, remember, Paul had been a Pharisee. He understood. That was his culture. That he, had, he was steeped in the scriptures. He knew exactly the, what circumcision meant. Now, he did not believe that circumcision was a requirement for salvation. That had been a huge controversy. There were a lot of people in, in the, who had come to follow Jesus, who even as they had come to follow Jesus from the Jewish community, some of the leaders there, and we talked about this, who still were insisting that the Gentiles, that they really wanted to come and be a true part of community, even as adults, the, the, the males had to be circumcised. That was, they were insisting upon it. Paul and the apostles said, no, that, that's not a requirement. So now we, so it makes us scratch our head and say, well, well why is Paul then asking Timothy to be circumcised when they've just had this decision. And Paul was the one saying, you shouldn't have to be. It's because Paul also knew that there were people in the, in, that he had, you know, he understood how they thought, who if you, if you were not, if you were Jewish, but you, you were not, or you wanted to identify as a Jew and you had not been circumcised, that would create a, a tremendous point of, of a, how would I say it, a great distance. If, 
Timothy, even though he was Jewish, seemed to have identified more with his father's culture, the Greek culture, so he hadn't been circumcised. Even though he had a faith that he shared with his mother and grandmother, he seemed to, and it doesn't seem like his father was alive anymore, but he still had, he had been kind of Greek enculturated. And so he had never been circumcised. So Paul says, look, we want you to come with us, but we're going into places, because this is what, the, he, it's like he has this statement. He says, you know what, Timothy, look, the first thing, again, I tried to imagine that conversation, because, right, Paul really wants to, to have doors open up. And he knows that, that the, the Jewish community that he has interacted with that, and that he has a burden to reach as well as the Gentiles, that for them this issue of circumcision is a big deal. They're going to ask him, is everyone in your party circumcised? Before they'll even allow him into a conversation. So basically, and again, what I see here is something that's interesting to me. It's part of Paul's pragmatism, his sense of calling. He was willing, in his mind, he's willing to become all things to all men. It's not an issue of salvation. He's just willing to do it because it'll create an opportunity to talk about Jesus in places he wants to go. And he knows how important it is to be able to have that conversation. He cares about his people. He wants even to reach those who have a very rigid perspective of God. And he feels that to do that, Timothy's going to need to be able to sort of accommodate that. And again, Paul was this highly adaptive person. He, he tended to adapt to a culture. For him, cultural issues were not as big of a deal. What he wanted above everything else was to build a bridge, if possible, remove a barrier, certainly. Again, not with, not with compromising the most core principles of Scripture that are clearly articulated that he understood, but at the same time, on the non-essentials, and he saw this as one of them, he said, we need, to, we need to have a flexibility about us if we really care about reaching certain people. And so he was trying to push into that, his, but his goal, remember this, his goal was singular. It was to win, to see lost men and women come to faith in Jesus. And he really is an interesting mix. Because on the one hand, you know, he's, like, he's radically focused, you know, totally committed. You would almost say idealistic. But on the other hand, he's like this pragmatic, flexible person who is willing to adapt. If it would open up more doors to them to, to spread the message, or at least make it less likely that that door would be closed on them, then let's have Timothy circumcised. Now, again, I tried to imagine that conversation. I imagine some, I don't know how it came up, but I imagine Timothy in the room was saying, what, what did you say? You know, did you, we want you to come with us, Timothy. I want to go. There's only one small detail. You're going to need to be circumcised. I'm a man, right? Why? Why? I thought you said it wasn't like required. It isn't. But for you right now, it is, and we need you to do this. But why? Okay, here's the deal. You know we're called to reach, take this message to the Gentiles. But the problem is, you know where we go first in every city we go to? The first place we go is to the, to the Jewish synagogue. And in the synagogue, we meet, we meet Jews who believe in God, who we want to share the message of Messiah with. And then on top of that, we meet Gentiles who are believers in God and are connected to the community. That's the first place we go. Now, I know these men. And I know that for them, if they find out that you're not, they're going to they're gonna say that I am not honoring custom and culture and I am not honoring the scripture. And they're going to close the door on me. So what I need for you to do, if you can do this, is I need for you to be circumcised. You know, we'll wait for you to heal up and all. But... <laughs> 
was like, and Timothy, I mean, I mean, if I'm Timothy, I'm going, oh man, that is just wrong, you know? But at the, same, at the same time, he cares. He genuinely cares, and he understands Paul. And again, I think we look at it from our perspective, we go, that's, that's crazy. But in there, for him, for Paul, he understood the implications. So for his team to move in unity, he asked Timothy to consider doing this. Timothy did. Again, I go back, because again, what, what is Paul dominated by? He's dominated by this um, principle. He said, he, later on, he will say, to the Jew, I became as a Jew. He's talking about his own people. He says, basically, I did what I could to identify with them to bring the message of Jesus. And in fact, he would write about this in 1 Corinthians in his letter to the church in Corinth. I put, the, put it in the parallel passage there. I just want us to really look at it real quick. You'll get a sense of how Paul thinks. He says, for though I am free of all men, and I'm, I have made myself a servant to everyone. I have no responsibility. I am my own person, but I have chosen to come as a servant for the cause of Jesus. He says uh, that I might, my purpose though, look at that 19th verse, is that I might win the more. So he says, for the Jews, to my own people, I became as a Jew. That is, I worked with them. I worked with their scruples and distinctives. He says, I know them. I, I, that I did this that I might win my Jewish brethren. He goes, to those who are under the law, you know what? I moved under the law. That I might win those who have a high regard for that law. He goes, the, the law that I believe is meant to lead us to Jesus. He says, for those who are without the law, he's talking about the Gentiles. Remember, Timothy is a Greek father. He says, that's the culture he comes from. Paul knew that culture. He had grown up around it. He says, to, the, to those who are Gentiles without the law, you know what? Then I, I, I can move without the law. It, it, I, he says, look, it, not that I'm being reckless. That's what he means here. Not, not that I'm not without law towards God, but in the law towards Christ. In other words, I'm viewing the law through the lens of Jesus, which has a far more expansive view than the rigidity that has often been taught and associated with it. What he's saying is, though I'm not, gonna be re- I'm not being reckless, at the same time I'm being adaptive. And he's saying what I want to do is I'm going to meet people where they are as much as I can. Because I'm going to try to understand them, meet them, not impose my culture, but come next to them. Because he says, I have a reason. What is the overriding burden of my heart? And he describes it, he says, is that I might win them. That I might win them to Christ. To the weak, he says, I've become weak. He's talking about people who stumble over things. He says, that I might win the weak. I have become, listen, all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now I do this, he says, let me be clear. I do this not because I'm a chameleon who just wants people to like me. He says, I do this because I have an overriding desire. I do it for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. I want to share and extend the life of Christ. Now he says, the gospel's sake. Now what is the gospel? A lot of times that word comes up, it literally means good news. What is that good news? How, what do we mean by it? We, it's, a, it's a term used, a phrase used. Paul's using it here. I, you know, later on, he will define it very, very clearly. And I think it's actually helpful for us later on to think about it. But I did want to go back and just finish up that, that 16th, verse, 16th chapter of Acts and see what happens next. So it kind of gives us the mindset of Paul. It says, then they went from town to town, instructing the believers to follow the decisions made by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. The churches were strengthened in their faith. They grew larger every day. You know, growth is usually a sign of blessing and, and health. Not always, but usually. It has living things grow. Um, but going back to that 1 Corinthians 9 passage, Paul says, this I do for the gospel's sake, the very bottom. What is the gospel? At its core, Paul actually defines it for us. And this is going to be really important for us just to remember again, or maybe for the first time, as we head into Easter. 1 Corinthians 15, he tells us what it is. 
It's on the other side as well. He says, moreover, brethren, this is later in that letter. He says, I preach to you this gospel. I declare to you this gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you now stand, by which you are also saved. If you will hold fast to the word that I have preached to you, unless you're, you've believed in vain, you've you got to hold on to this word. You've got to keep that faith alive in your heart. You've got to honor it. He says, here it is. Here is the gospel. Look at it. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also was given, I received. This is it. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now what's fascinating here is he's saying Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ rose. This is the message I was given to give away. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now what scriptures is he referring to? Because the New Testament is still in formation. They ha- it, he's talking about the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. He's saying the scriptures that I have been trained in, the scriptures that I have grown in, he's talking about, he's talking about how the, ones that he, the scriptures that he was steeped in, this is where he had come to see Jesus in as well. As he now, as someone whose life had been altered by that, that moment on the road to Damascus, where he says, who are you, Lord? And to his shock and utter dismay, the voice that comes back, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, it, it, it completely turned his world upside down. But then he went back, and as he started to look back at, into the, in the scriptures, in the, into the teachings that he had grown up with and understood so deeply and poured his heart and life and intellect into, that he began to see, he began to say, Jesus is everywhere in them. And he, think, he starts talking about things like the sacrificial system that God instituted. Why that? What's all this thing about blood and sacrifice? Remember, there are moments where it talks about how a lamb is taken and the blood blood covers the sins of the people. And he's saying all of that foreshadows the ultimate sacrifice of God, the one who would give himself away to cover our sins, not just temporarily, but forever. He says that was all to remind us, to get us to Messiah Jesus. Remember when John the Baptist, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he sees Jesus, you know what he says to him? It's interesting. His first thing out of his mouth is, Behold, the Lamb of God! who takes away the sin of the world. The whole idea is Paul saying that everything in the scripture move, was moving us towards an understanding that Messiah was going to come, not to be the conquering king, to violently overthrow the nations, but to come as the one who would be the ultimate representative of a lost humanity and give his life away as a ransom for many. He said the Son of Man has come to give his life away, that we might have life in his name. I mean, it was an amazing thing that Jesus said he had come to do. Paul had come to see it. Paul started, look, the more, when he starts talking about it, he says, you know, I see Jesus everywhere. I see all these, all the prophets and the law. It all anticipates his coming. Everything about it is set up to lead us there. Even the lamb's blood that was put on the door of the, of the people when they were enslaved in Egypt. And the death angel passes over, passes over, that's Passover, because the blood of the lamb was on the door. He says, and they live and are delivered because of that blood. He says, even that anticipated the ultimate sacrifice of God, the blood of the lamb, who, when applied to the door of our heart, creates the possibility of death to pass over us and life as well, comes into us in an entirely different way. Paul said, if you look at the prophets, they all talked about Jesus. He starts talking about how people like Abraham anticipated Christ. He talks about how 
Moses and Joseph represent as deliverers. He talks about David as the king. He starts talking about all he, he has. Two, he refers to two chapters, amazing cha Isaiah 53, stunning description of the Christ suffering, the suffering Savior. Psalm 22, a picture of Jesus on the cross. And then a verse that I really didn't appreciate till very lately. Something that I noticed that I thought, that is fascinating when it was brought to my attention. I've read it before. I never saw it this way. In Hosea 6, look what it says here. Hundreds of years before Jesus. It says this in Hosea 6. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He was stricken, but he will bind us up. Then notice the numbers. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up. We are alive in Christ. It's powerful that we may live in his sight. These are amazing. Paul saw, saw Jesus in all of this. He says this is designed to lead us somewhere. It wasn't an end in itself. It was designed to lead us by faith into a place. Now, I say that. Now, look, let's go back continuing on here, what he says. Because then what he proceeds to do is after he says, look, the gospel is grounded in the scriptures, he says. He goes, but, he says, another thing it's grounded in is eyewitness accounts. And he, may, and he shares a list of people who saw the risen Savior. Look what he says. He says this. He says, you know what? He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And he was seen by Cephas. That's a nickname for Peter. And then he was seen by the twelve. And then he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, a larger group. He says, in fact, he says, many of them are still alive at the time that I'm writing this letter, but some of them have left and, and have died, have fallen asleep. He says, and, and, and then he was also seen by James, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who did not believe in Jesus, who becomes the lead pastor in the church in Jerusalem. He says, and, and then he was seen by all the apostles. Oh, and last of all, he says, he was seen by me. Now he's coming to the moment where he felt, he says, I, I was apprehended by Jesus. He, he goes back in time. He goes, he goes, but the truth is, I was one born out of due time. I was an unexpected, delayed birth. But I was born nonetheless, and I saw. It changed my life. I went from, he went from being the enemy of Jesus to becoming a man on fire for the cause of Christ. Now, look what he says. He says, he goes, I, he goes, now, he puts himself on the list, and he says, now, look, I go, now, watch, watch this rhythm here. He goes, now, I know, he goes, I, how can I say this? I am an apostle. I am an ambassador of Christ. That's what an apostle is, one who is sent as an ambassador, essentially. He goes, and I am one. I saw the risen Jesus. It changed my life. He says, I don't know why he chose me. I don't know why he would use someone like me. In fact, he says, now, watch what he does. It's like he goes back in time, and he goes, you know, the truth is, I'm, I'm the least, I'm the bottom of the list. And the reason I'm the least of the apostles, in fact, he says, you know what? <laughs> I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle because you know why? I once persecuted and really damaged and hurt the, the church of Jesus. I, I did. I, I, look what I did to the church of God. I, I persecuted it. He goes, I don't know why. What did I do to deserve this? He goes, I'm the worst. I'm the least. I got, I got do you know my past? I got blood on my hands. I mean, in his mind and eye, he's going all the way back. He's thinking, well, Stephen, who he never forgot, all the people who he had arrested, the families he broke apart, all of the chaos, the havoc that he, it says, the Bible says, he wrecked havoc on the church. Used every ounce of his mighty personality. He says, I was filled with zeal and venom. 
It was misdirected zeal, but I was zealous for the things of God, and I went at them. Now he says, you know what? I don't know why God did it. He turned me around from being a hater of Jesus to someone who now is an apostle. I don't know. I don't know why he chose me. He goes, you know what? I'm the least. He goes, but you know one thing I do know? He says this, by the grace of God. Now he catches himself. He says, look at that. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I can't change what I was, but this is who I am now. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And then it's like he, he falls back one more time and he goes, and I will tell you that his grace towards me has not been in vain. No, I, I have worked harder than them all, labored more abundantly, partly because he's walking through what he has been. And then it's like he, he, he makes that statement. So he, and then he, it's like he catches himself again. And what does he do? He goes, but, but even that is the grace of God that even allows me to do it. So he's like, this, he's like having this, this movement back and forth. He was seen by me. I'm the last one. He was seen by me. I don't know why he would use me. I am an apostle, but I don't know why he would use me. I have such a bad past. But then by his grace, I am who I am. And I work harder than everyone else. I'm doing it. It's not in vain. But then on the other hand, even that, I can't brag on it because even that is because of God's grace. So everything, for him, this was all about what the Lord had done. Now that leads me to where I want to finish. How do we think about this coming week? What do we do to embrace? What did Paul suggest we're to embrace? I believe this, we are being given an invitation. to do, And this is two simple things. But if we will do them, we will deepen our life with Jesus. He will become more real to us, more alive to us. The first thing we're invited to do is embrace the cross. I mean, really embrace this moment. Again, one of the reasons I love... Good Friday is, is, is it's like I'm embracing the, the pain of Jesus. It's, it's like, how can I say this? When we talk about embracing the cross, we're being invited to reflect on his suffering on our behalf. Um, who, who would love us while we hated them? Who would love us while we were an enemy? But God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Um, what we talk about here is the commitment of Jesus to the Father's plan, even though it cost him everything. And he didn't have to do it. He did it. You know what? He was talking to a man who was an honest seeker, a very intelligent man, who was struggling to believe. His name was Nicodemus. And in that third chapter of John, it's a conversation that Jesus is having with this man it's out of that conversation that he utters a statement that we have come to embrace throughout time, really. For it was to this man who was seeking, this very bright and intelligent man who was nonetheless lost. He said, do you understand that God has so loved this world that he has given his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have the undying life of God, everlasting life, both now and yet to be. Listen, God did not send his son, speaking of himself, to condemn this world. It already has death on it. But to save it, that the world through him might be saved. Do you understand this? This is, this is what we get to ponder for a moment. I think about part of what we mean when we talk about embracing the cross, right? When we talk about it, part of what we're talking about is this idea 
of really honoring the moment. And so part of me goes, Lord, when we talk about this, it's about embracing the pain and the sadness, at least in part, and the ambiguity of life as well. So that part of what we're doing is we're also taking some time to think about the imperfection of life. So when we think about the cross, we're thinking about how he suffered. We also think about our own frailty. You know, we're just jars of clay. We, we are easily broken. And part of what we are reminding ourselves is that Jesus walked the Via Dolorosa. He walked the way of suffering. If God spared not his own son, not every question is going to be answered the way we always want it in this life. But one thing we can do is we can know this, that he gave everything for us, and he invites us to receive him fully. How much do you love me? I, I, I give you everything I have. Um, when we honor that, when we truly understand it, it breaks our pride. We, are, we, are, we, are, we say thank you. We come and we give, him, we give him our heart. We give him our brokenness. So I guess what I'm asking is as we make our way to the cross, are there some things the Lord maybe is asking us to submit to him? This is a really good time to surrender things. This is a good time to, to mark certain, certain things in our own heart with him. You say, Lord, you know, I talk about, and I say, sometimes just read, read, read one of the Gospels or more, to, read the last week of Jesus' life, ponder that moment, ponder his moment on the cross. And then ask ourselves, Lord, are there things that you're, I'm, I'm really encouraging us to actually not just move through this thing, but actually slow down and ponder the cross. And say, Lord, are there things that you're maybe asking me to surrender? Are there wounds? Are there attitudes? Are there habits that I've, inquiring that honestly they're not bringing you any, anything good in my life? Are there ways of being that you're asking me to die to, that I might live to the new things you want me to be? Lord, I welcome the power of the living God into my life, the power that, that you gave everything to, uh, to allow to move into my life. I open up my heart before you. I bow my knee before you. I welcome you into my life, freshly, truly, honestly, I cannot repay you for the debt I owe you. I, I, I am a man of contradictions. I give you my life, though. And I know that you will walk with me wherever I go, through every valley, every season, every place, every questioning place, every really hard place. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end. We're going to... We're going to talk about that in the weeks after Easter, the future life. Last thing I'll say about it is the idea of embracing not just the cross, but the resurrection. So Paul said, Christ was died, he was buried, he rose. What does that mean? It means that we are, we are to live life with utter hopefulness. How good is that? Utter hopefulness. To, to never, ever, ever, ever think of ourselves in any other way than as a person who is anchored in hope because what Jesus said is, because I live, you will live also. That we have an opportunity to have life in his name. That that life means, is meant to carry us beyond the time when I will lay aside this outward tent and all of us will at some day, this tent is not made to last, not in this present life, but the undying life of Jesus becomes a part of who we are. And that's part of what we're invited to do. Lord, I invite your life into my life. Not just for what is yet to be, although that is becoming more and more meaningful to me.
but also, Lord, I invite your undying life into me in this present moment, that in this time of my journey on this world, as I walk it, I invite your life, God, into me, living Savior, guarantor of my future, present in my present. I welcome you in by my own heart's choice, living Savior, not just the one who died, but the one who rose. Rise in me as well. Let your life flow in me as well into the dying places. Bring life, for you are the God of life. You're the life giver. We pray this in Jesus' name, even now. So, Lord, I thank you. I, I pray, Lord, that as we, as we close, even, even just getting ourselves ready to enter into this week, that we would be thinking about ways that we can honor you, that we will slow down and not and not necessarily just rush through this moment, but really honor you in it by choice, listening for your words. I pray that as we close the service, we have our closing song, which is so connected to everything we're sharing, speaking of your death and resurrection. I pray that you would be honored in it. Bless our time of giving. Bless this closing song. Move in our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.